my next guest is Dr. Sarah Golding, who is an NHS GP, career coach, as well as many other things. In this episode, we'll talk about all the different things that she's been able to do. We'll also touch on how we can start to go about finding what our true values are and how we can create a career path that is unique to us. Make sure you stay tuned to the end as I have a little message for you guys. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? Yeah, really well, Zena. Thanks. So I thought we would just jump right into it. Could you tell us a little bit about your medical journey? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I had a pretty straightforward beginning. I you know, went to school, got into the uni I wanted to, which was really lucky. Loved med school, did my house jobs, which were the usual um, sort of almost ritual of survival. Um, got through that and then had a deferred entry to my GP training scheme in Oxford. Um, and so in that deferral, I went traveling, I worked abroad, I did some expedition medicine, I did some locuming around the country, loads of stuff. Um, and then did my GP training, did some medical education specializing towards the end as a GP senior reg. And then I sort of did the classic following my husband around for his job a bit, because he's a consultant in hospital. Um, came back, landed somewhere, did some more medical education, became a GP partner, had two kids, did some appraising, <laughs> did some family planning, did a few other things along the way. And now I've got a portfolio of six different roles, mm. which include being a coach for doctors, specialising in career and well-being. I'm a training programme director for GP trainees. I'm a, an appraiser still. I'm a GP mentor and I do talks on well-being. I think those are the main ones at the moment. But I'm also head of coaching at the Joyful Doctor. So yeah, wow. I always forget one of them. <laughs> that's incredible. So that's a whole lot. So what we'll do is we'll go a little bit further back to the beginning so you yeah. mentioned that you were able to defer your GP entry was that mm. a, a conscious decision because you wanted to go traveling yeah it was because I'd kind of I got to uni and it felt like I, I, I wanted to go straight to university once I'd done my A-levels because I didn't really have any particular ideas of what I wanted to do and also frankly I was scared of the idea of doing something different I didn't really have any ideas but once I'd done that um, I'd seen quite a lot of people doing some really fun things I started going traveling quite a lot while in the holidays where I could and just completely loved it and was like there's this big wide world out there I want to see so much of it I want to get stuck in and so it felt like an opportunity because I know when you get stuck into your training schemes it's quite rare for people to now have these um, breaks from training although there are some new um, schedules coming in where you can have an out of program pause but I was just aware yeah this is my chance let's see what I can do and actually I managed to sneak in they hadn't read on my application that I wanted to defer entry and they told me after they offered me the job oh actually we wouldn't have even interviewed you if we'd known oh. that so actually it was luck yeah oh, wow. that I managed that's to really get in <laughs> that's really interesting I guess nowadays it, it's more common for people to take what we would call like an F3 year now. Um, but I imagine back then it was quite unusual to step out of training. Um, no, actually, that wasn't the case. It was very, very common for people to have time off 
after their house offers a year, okay. um, people often would go to Australia, New Zealand, go travelling, do some locuming um, in a very unstructured way. So it wasn't called anything. It was just, you know, I'm just going to go abroad for a bit and check it out. Um, but I wanted something to come back to. So that was why I applied for something before going, because I couldn't have done it while I was away. So, yeah, it was pretty common. And actually, okay. I think it was more flexible than it is now because you could do what you want and it wasn't really frowned upon. It was just seen as fairly standard. Um, oh. So I think in a way it's harder now because people have to justify it more. They have to give it a name. They have to be doing something on purpose. You know, I worked in New Zealand and loved that. And I think that flexibility was very liberating and meant that there wasn't quite so much pressure on your choices mm. of speciality training. But mm. I, when I got to New Zealand, I went there by myself because I thought, oh, I'll be big and brave. And I sat at the bus stop having just arrived and literally five people from my year at medical school all turned up on the next bus. <laughs> um, so it was very much a common thing. And I found people from my year all around New Zealand in different hospitals. It was a, it was a really common path. I don't know what the percentage would be. Mm. I'd say at least a quarter didn't mm. go straight into run-through training because it wasn't really expected. It was very open. So in that year, you went to New Zealand to work? Yeah, first of all, I went backpacking around Vietnam, Cambodia, Southeast Asia with a with a friend. Then I went to New Zealand. Yeah, I had a job through a locum agency. I had a three-month job being a medical SHO, doing a sort of a renal unit job in a place called Whangarei, which was amazing. And we got greeted by the local Maori leader and we were sort of stayed overnight in the in the Hungi, the um, I mean the Marai, the Maori greeting house and we were taught how to do the greetings and had some sort of cultural training which was brilliant um, yeah I just had an absolutely amazing time up there that's incredible I don't think many people could say that they've experienced that no and we all stayed overnight in this big I mean it was like a big village hall but we were it was such an amazing induction you know it was really recognizing that it was important that culturally we understood what was going on mm. locally for the Maori people and what was okay what definitely wasn't acceptable um, but also to get to know the people we were working with it was a really lovely environment and we had a, a barbecue we stayed overnight it was just amazing that's incredible what do you think you learned from that trip to New Zealand apart from sort of the cultural aspects um, first of all, I kind of got a bit of confidence in myself that I could work in a different system, that I could step up and be that next level um, and have a little bit of pride in myself because I think in that early years post-training, you quite often kind of, it's all about surviving it or at least that's how it felt to me we had some fairly brutal I know everyone always says that in my day the hours were dreadful but there, there was some really it was very early on in the in the in the hours directive stuff so some of it was really very difficult to live through so to get to New Zealand and work at a higher level but still function well, have a higher level of responsibility but also see how different health systems work because there you had to pay a little bit to see a doctor but some of that got paid back and 
it, that was just really interesting and also just a different way of life. You know, I was living above a fish and chip shop by the sea and driving into the into town and it was just a very different atmosphere and there was very much more of an outdoors okay after work we'll go to the beach this weekend we'll go sailing and I know that's probably true in lots of coastal towns in the UK but that was different for me um Mm. as well as being a little bit more reliant on myself because I think I'd gone straight from school into quite a protected university campus environment Mm. into house jobs where you're provided accommodation I had to start working these things out for myself and it was scary but then I got a lot of um, self-esteem through doing that so that was that was really useful for me that's incredible and is this before you went on an expedition um, to Namibia yeah yeah, so I I had planned, and this I was trying to sort of set these things up as I went along, um, and I had planned to be going on a scuba diving expedition, but I got adult onset asthma. So at the last minute, even though I got all my scuba diving gear, I was already, I couldn't go on that one. And I found Rally International had gaps on two of their different expeditions um, for a medic to go out. And you still had to raise money to go on it to sort of fund your place. Um, But it was amazing. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. So I was out in Namibia for three months. But the thing I loved about it was that the whole aim of it wasn't the let's go out to Africa, be a white saviour and build a school. It was personal development. It was about, let's make this really difficult. We're not going to make life easy. Um, If you want to radio anywhere, you're going to have to string these bits of radio wire up on a pole and crank it up because we don't have a battery. So somebody has to hand crank it. If you want to go to the loo, it's going to be a hole in the ground. And when we were in the capital, it was frozen, so there would be ice on the inside of your tent. You'd go to the long drop loo and come out, and the thing you could wash your hand on was a frozen bowl <laughs> of dilute bleach. So, you know, yeah, it was it was not an easy ride. And I was I was only just the other side of the volunteers age group. I was 25. Um, but I'd experienced a bit of life by then but for some of these 18 year olds who were doing it in their gap year it was quite a shock um and some of them who were sort of coming to me with something they would probably wouldn't have even gone to their mother about you know I've hit my thumb with a hammer or I've got my malaria pills and it's Thursday but I'm still on Wednesday on my pack why is that Dr Sarah and I'd sort of bang my head against you know the proverbial wall and then go Actually, it's just they need a bit of mothering because they're not used to having to do this on their own and they are so far outside of their comfort zone um, that, yeah, I needed to fulfil that role a little bit for them. That is so interesting. And I can't imagine sort of like going through that, even now at my age, that that does sound like an ordeal. Yeah, and I don't think you really know what you're getting into because you go on these selection things and you're woken up and in the middle of the night as a member of staff, you have to make your own thing that you sleep in. You have to kind of do a pretend evacuation of a casualty. Um, So they work out that you're not kind of soft or that you can cope with hardship or lack of sleep. And a lot of it, you know, it's not like they're throwing hardship at you every day, but there was one day a bushfire um, and 
we had a guard with a rifle who had to fire a shot because an elephant was stampeding towards our camp. You know, these crazy things and people that were bitten by a scorpion or, um, yeah. So, so not all of it was like that day to day. It was just eating fairly poor quality dried food and doing manual labour. But there were bits of it that you'd come away with and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I actually did that. And that to get everywhere, you sit on an unpadded back of a truck with dust and wind and whatever blowing through your hair um, and take nine hours to get back to camp. And just when you're making friendships, they mix everybody up again. Um, but along the way, they do lots of one-to-one mentoring and, and at the campfire, you'd do your gratitudes, you talk about your highs and lows of the day, what did you find challenging? So it was very much on personal development, which I think is amazing because those are the lessons you'll take away with you. Mm. Um, and I definitely did. I learned so much from it. I can imagine. I'm, yeah, I can imagine that's something that you'd never, ever be able to forget. And you'd actually get, like you said, a lot, a lot from it. So did you come back to the UK after that? Yeah, I came back and I, I didn't have that long after that before starting my GP training, but I did a bit of medical SHO locuming around the country, which was absolutely terrifying. And looking back now, I can't believe I did it. Um, but again, gave me quite a lot of confidence that I could cope with that situation, go into hospitals I'd never been in, mm. try and find out where the accommodation was, act safely. Yeah, I was all over the place. And yeah, and some money, you know, mm-hmm. I needed to pay pay my way. So yeah, yeah. That, that was interesting in itself, actually, that experience. It's interesting that you, you mean you said that because following the two sort of, at least two big adventures that you've just mentioned, I would imagine that coming back to the UK would have been quite easy. But I sort of remember when I, after my F2, I locumed for a bit as well. And sometimes you just enter hospitals and they just expect you to hit the ground running. No induction, no nothing. Just work out where everything is. Just work out your way through the hospital. And yeah, that can definitely be daunting and can really hit your confidence as well because you know what to do like if if you're in the right setting you know what to do but because Mm. no one's actually been able to sort of show you the ropes a little bit that makes a lot that makes a difference is that how is that what you experienced definitely I think I had I don't remember having inductions I kind of (laughs) I would turn up and quite often I'd be doing some unpopular shift like a night shift doing medical night shift in a hospital I'd never been in before. I didn't even know where the car park was, let alone accommodation. Um, and yeah, you'd basically just be given a bleep at reception. And yeah, you usually knew how to, you know, do the twos for the cardiac arrest. But beyond that, they'd be like, oh, you need to go to this ward. <laughs> like, where is that ward? How do I find somewhere to eat? How do I... Yeah, so that was that was definitely daunting. But I think... There was a bit of team structure then, so you'd usually know who you were on with, and I'd usually be on with, you know, somebody who was a house officer, somebody who was a registrar, Um, so you'd kind of rely on that, but mainly 
the amazing nurses who would kind of look at you and go, oh, bad luck, okay, <laughs> do you want a cup of tea? This is where you go, this is where all the paperwork is. And in different hospitals, they had different cannula systems, they had different yeah. blood-taking bottles, and it's stuff like that that blows your mind. It does. It's not the, the medicine was easy, you know, you'd kind of, and I think that's true as a locum, as a GP, mm. and I've locumed a lot. The medicine is the easy bit. You're like, yeah, I can do this. It's all the logistics how do I how do I request a test? Where do I send the bloods? All of that stuff. How do we do handover and what does that look like and where is it? It's yeah. And in ge- general practice now, the good the good places have a lo- locum induction folder, mm. um, or they will expect to have somebody to tell you that stuff. But I don't know what it's like for people locuming in hospitals now. And then when you, so you did um, GP training, which was three years. And how how did you, what was it like afterwards? Well, I did a three and a half year one in the end, because at the end, I was really lucky. I was able to apply for one of these senior GP registrar posts um, for kind of people who have a particular interest or have leadership potential. And so I was able to do quite a nice version at the end where I did six months where I was half medical education, half GP reg, mm-hmm. but I was kind of working independently. So it was quite a nice way of learning a bit more about my trade in a slightly more independent way, but supported as well as learning some more stuff. Um, but at the end of that, yeah, I, I think in an ideal world, I would have moved into a GP salaried role in a nice supportive team. But what actually happened was I got married, my husband had a training post down in London, and I had to try and find work elsewhere where I didn't know anybody, I didn't know who to contact, I didn't know how to find work. Um, and actually that was very lonely and destabilising, um, while also trying to continue my medical education distance learning which was very dry because I wasn't practicing any of it so Mm -hmm. it was a yeah it was a difficult time actually Mm. um moving to a new area I can imagine um so did you start locuming in London yeah Mm. yeah I kind of locumed but I I ended up I think we did it for nine months in the end and I ended up working in something like 25 different practices in nine months um and there were people who would ignore you you just get ignored by reception just go in go out you know treated very much as a service provider some places that were lovely other places that you do the work you'd send in your invoice and then they'd refuse to pay a part of it and you felt that you were very powerless in that situation so yeah, it was, a, it was a kind of a baptism of fire for me, really, kind of trying to learn about negotiations. You know, what will I and won't I do? How do I charge? What am I prepared to do? What am I not? Um, and all of that was quite, you know, doing that on my own was quite scary. I think the whole system now where they have these first five in general practice, they, the RCGP have some first five um, groups which is in theory a nice peer support network but I didn't have access to those <laughs> I'm gonna sound really ancient again they they didn't have there wasn't lots of online support because mm. I was doing this in what 2006 2005 that just wasn't really a thing back then so it was yeah I think the importance of having a network and people to lean on 
when I was in Oxford where I trained, I knew where the, the locum group was that I could mm. go to every now and then and have a chat and go, which practices are great? Which mm. do I avoid? What do you do about charging? Um, how long do you leave it before chasing them to pay an invoice? Really kind of, again, the logistics, which you don't really think about and setting yourself up as a business, having to invoice, having to do your pension, all the paperwork associated with that, quite convoluted and time consuming. Um, so it's not for the faint hearted being a locum, certainly. Yeah, no, not the way that you're describing it. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> um, I think yeah. there are ways of doing it. And if you, you know, the ideal and what I did when I moved back to the Midlands mm-hmm. was, was um I did some maternity locums and that's got a very different vibe to it. Yeah, but like the way you described it, as running yourself as a new business when you, as medics we don't actually have that many business skills, um we're not taught it, so it's something that you kind of have to learn as you're going along and it, yeah, it, it definitely a lot of trial and error and a lot of mistakes, um but. I assume you you learned a lot from that experience. Oh, hugely. And, you know, I think, yeah, I was lucky in that towards the end of my GP training, they did have one afternoon on, you know, finances. But I think it's the classic thing. You don't know what you need until until you need it. So now I'm teaching GP trainees. I could say to them that what you really need is a session on negotiation and boundary setting and assertiveness and how to price yourself in a market if you're going to be a locum or salaried or partner. All of those things, these are life skills that are really useful to you. But at the time, you just want to know how to pass the exam. Mm. And you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, Please teach me what are the inhalers I need for COPD. Um, So it's, yeah, it's a difficult one. That's really interesting that there is, I I don't don't think I've ever even thought about that, about there being finance is taught to GPs because GPs tend to run themselves as a business as well even if you're like okay maybe not if you're salaried but if you're a partner um Mm. that's that's definitely a huge aspect of it and I assume even as a salaried GP you would need to learn you know why decisions are being made um why things are being done the way that they are so that would be sort of helpful wouldn't it to to know a bit more of the financial aspects yeah, and also as salaried, people around the country or abroad are offered very different employment packages as well. So how to know what is okay in my mentoring and with my coaching work, I'm often seeing people who are kind of just at the start start out of their career and they're trying to, well, what oh, is it okay to push back on this? Is this reasonable? Mm. Is it not reasonable? Because in hospitals, a job is a job. You mm. take it, here's your here's your pay. That's not the case in general practice. Um, In any of the general practice jobs, there is not a set pay, there are not set hours. There might be a BMA model contract if you're salaried, but that depends on the practice. And what that is paid is different, and whether you are paid extra for doing things like private medicals, um, or whether you're just given extra time for it. So yeah, it's quite complex. I... When I knew I wanted to apply to be a partner, because I was like, this is what you do when you're a grown-up, you apply to be a partner, um, I 
took myself off to uni and did a master's level module on management because you know as medics that's what we do if I have a piece of paper I'll be competent um, and so I did this and it was a lot of work and I had to do this uni level essay and blah 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 and I think it was much more for me and my own confidence I did I don't think I used any of that in reality but it made me feel better having done it and I don't think my partners could have given a hoot about me having done it but I think I was trying to get myself into that business mode and it was a recognition that there was a lot of stuff I didn't know but in reality you learn a lot of it on the job on the job I could imagine did you move back up to the Midlands was this the time that you moved back up yeah I moved I moved to Warwick um I again at the end of being in London I went traveling with my husband because we both hated it he was doing a sort of a lat post and I was just miserable really (laughs) we're kind of we're country mice we're not town mice so we didn't like London and so we went traveling again while waiting to find out if he would get a job and on our way to the Great Wall of China he got a job in the West Midlands and I thought that's nice I also don't know anybody in the West Midlands And we landed back in the UK and I contacted Warwick Hospital and went, right, so what's the accommodation like? And they went, oh, we don't have any. Mm. And we had three weeks to try and find somewhere to live in a town we didn't know. And the hospital gave us no help. So, yeah, it was, again, a bit starting from scratch. I was at least in the geographical area of where I knew some of the medical education. And I did end up um, being a training programme director or used to be called a course organiser for the VTS down in Banbury, but I didn't know any of the GP people oh, wow. up in the Midlands. So another yeah. another <laughs> another journey, incredible. Yeah. You, yeah, you mentioned yeah. about building a tribe of non-medic friends. Why was that important to you? I think partly because I was a new mum. Um, I needed support in that respect. I wasn't near any of my family. Mm. Um, wasn't wasn't within two hours of any of my family and all of my kind of school friends were all down south so it was trying to find that support network and that group of people that can be there for you when you're just having a really cruddy day and and understand what my life was like at the time and I was lucky to do that through my sort of antenatal classes it's a bit like parent dating you know you turn up and you think are you guys going to be my new best friends and and at the time all you talk about is the real basics you know how many times did your child barf on you that day or wake you up in the night but now they're my closest friends nearby you know we've we've known each other for nearly 13 years and I call them my tribe they are my tribe of strong women um, who I can tell when I'm having just a rubbish day or I think like I've been a horrendous mum or I've got no idea what to do about X, Y, Z. But it was also about that identity of not just being a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what travelling did for me a bit in terms of going, I think you can, through medical school and the early training years, it can feel like that is all I am. I'm a doctor and on the days I'm off I don't really know what to do with myself because most of my colleagues are my friends and they're all at work if I'm not on shift they are Um, and that can be quite destabilizing Um, 
And so I felt it was much more important to me to have people who, yeah, I wasn't being a doctor, I wasn't being responsible for, I wasn't giving them medical advice. I could take off that serious, I can be responsible for life and death decisions and just talk nonsense and be silly and go out and dance, go to a stupid film and giggle and eat too much pick and mix. You know, just that whole version of myself. Um so important to me so if we move on to career coaching why is it that you decided to go on this route yeah it's been a long journey I it's because I got to the point when I was a partner where I burnout crept up on me and I didn't notice it I ended up having a few months off I had some help from practitioner health who were amazing and I always recommend their services if you're struggling with anything. Um, And I found once I'd left my partnership, I kind of didn't really know who I was. What was I if I wasn't a GP partner? What did I want to do? And I I re- it's only really as time has gone by that I could separate myself as a human from myself as a doctor and what that meant. And it was really interesting talking to people who weren't medics and kind of feeling this shame of going, well, if I'm not that, what am I doing? Am I not fulfilling my potential? Am I not giving back that service for all this expensive training I've had? Um, and a recognition that we don't talk about it much, you know, during our career. I don't really remember talking about it in med school beyond the gradually going through different specialities and going, well, I don't like that. I do like fetomaternal medicine, but, oh, I don't want to be a surgeon, so I can't do that. I do like this, but it super specialises. So it feels like it's a process of elimination based on what you see um, rather than what are my values? What is that overlap between what I can do and what I like doing and what really makes me feel passionate? You know, what is my purpose? Um, And I don't think we spend time thinking about those things. And I don't think we spend time thinking about the, well, the paths less taken. I've had to kind of create my portfolio And it's a great one. I completely love it. But if somebody had said to me five years ago I'd be doing it, I'd be absolutely bewildered and perhaps a bit judgy. (laughs) Because I think there's this, you know, you only, you can't be what you don't see. Um, As the marvellous Dr. Ronk says, um, we don't often see people doing things differently. And I think I had some fantastic coaching and I found it absolutely life-changing for me in that I was able to sit there and really give myself permission to think about those things. What matters to me? Where will I thrive? Mm -hmm. How can I plant myself where I'm going to grow and be the best version of myself, where I'm happy to work more and be really busy because it's not draining the life force out of me by the end of the day and leaving me as a kind of an empty husk that has nothing left. Um, And what does my identity look like if it's not just a doctor, it's a doctor and this? Um, So actually, actually, that was the other bit of my portfolio I didn't even talk about. I do do still locum. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but it feels like that's a much smaller part of my portfolio but I'm aware that there are people that think oh why aren't you I could see there's a bit of confusion or a bewilderment or perhaps a judgment about that and that might be transference from me that might not be the case but there's a perception I think that if you're not full-time partner if you're not full-time salaried if you're not you know doing certain jobs that maybe the value isn't there but I perceive my value is as in who I am as me mm-hmm. um, and I would love other people to feel the same and be able to think a bit more creatively about mm-hmm. what makes them happy and connect with all those bits of themselves that they had from school you know there there are so many bits that we explore and then we narrow down to this very narrow definition of ourselves and often we have to leave bits of ourselves behind Mm -hmm. so you mentioned values quite a bit how does one Mm. how does a person start to really hone down on what their values are yeah well there there are different exercises that you can do and that I do in coaching um partly it's allowing yourself to think even think about it you know what is important to me what does good look like there are things you can do like doing an exercise where you write out what is your ideal work day what do you notice about you know if you woke up somebody had waved a magic wand and it's your ideal day or week What do you notice? What's changed? What's different? Where are you? What are you doing? How do you feel? Who are you with? Um, And just allowing yourself to really open up your possibilities. Um, There's also a really good TED talk by somebody called Simon Sinek, Mm. who has called The Power of Why. I don't know if you've come across that. And he he comes from a marketing and PR background, so he talks about it in a very business way. But he draws a model where right in the middle of there's a circle that says your why and then there's your what, you know, why are you doing it? What are you doing it? And then the outer circle is how are you doing it? And it's about allowing yourself to spend some time rather than we often focus on the what am I doing? You know, how do I earn the money to pay the rent? How do I jump through the hoops to finish my training? Um, And what we actually need to do is start in the middle and go, okay, so if my why is to connect deeply with other humans and allow them to be the best version of themselves, which is a version of mine, okay, what would that mean? Okay, well, that means I would like to work with people in this space. I don't want to feel rushed. I want to be able to follow up and have long-term relations. And it follows on. Okay, what would that look like? It's yeah, there are different ways of looking at it, but that's a really good TED talk I'd recommend. Mm. It might be worth putting a link to in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, for um, sure. But there, there are loads of different ways of kind of drawing it out mm-hmm. or books, um, but different people learn in different ways. Mm. And, and I think the fundamental thing is allowing yourself the time and space to do that mm. and to have that conversation with someone else can be a value um someone that maybe doesn't know you so doesn't have preconceptions about what works for you and what doesn't so you you mentioned books before are there particular favorites of yours that you have 
Oh, loads. Um, I think if you're looking for career stuff, one of the one of the real classics is what colour is um, your parachute. Mm. And that's one for anybody. It's not aimed at medics. It's aimed at anybody. And, and it's got a really good coaching exercise that you can do yourself or sometimes I help my clients to do it. And it's all about building up your... Um, what does ideal look like? And it helps you work through different things. Who do I like working with? What situations do I like working in? And it goes all the way around. It has things like salary, geography. Um, what skills do I have that I like to use? And I think that's a really important emphasis. And then what is my purpose? Why am I doing it all? And it draws it up in a really nice flower diagram so I'd really recommend that one for people who are just thinking about their careers or just want to check in where they're at um so I think that one's a fantastic one mm. so I'll put that in the notes as well as well for anyone who's listening so you can check that out as well thank you so much Sarah um if people want to find you where can they find you yeah my absolute pleasure yeah so i've got a website which is drsarahgolding.com and i'm on primarily instagram and linkedin as at dr sarah golding i am on twitter but not quite so much okay um and if there are medic mums i've got a medic mum self-care group on facebook so they're welcome to contact me about that one. Oh, i didn't know you had well-being one. yeah it's just a little one but it's small and friendly <laughs> So as promised, I mentioned that I had a message for you all and it's basically that the podcast and this series is coming to an end. So series one is essentially winding down and there'll be one more episode after this. Let me know what your biggest takeaway was from this episode and I'll see you on the next one. Bye!